Let me ask you to take your Bibles with me and turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Paul speaks pretty boldly to the Roman church, especially considering the fact that he was not responsible for planting the church in the first place. I'm not sure if you um, remember that from our opening uh, sermon in Romans, but, but he, he had actually didn't plant the church and had never been there. And uh, so he makes some pretty bold statements here, some pretty harsh statements to the churches, uh, to the church at Rome, of which he, he really didn't have a direct part, at least in person. And so Paul um, does this because he wants to encourage them with regard to their faith. And so in this passage, he's going to remind them about how much he's encouraged about them, even though he said all these harsh things about them. In chapters 1 and 2, he told them about the reality of God's wrath on all mankind, that both Jews and Gentiles stand condemned because of their failure to obey the law. In chapter 3, he said that there's none righteous, not even one. And then, even when a person receives that salvation, they have no reason to boast because they're not justified by anything that they do. In chapters 4 through 8, he told them that they needed changed hearts and that the only way that they would have their hearts changed was by the power of the Spirit. There was nothing good in them to bring them to Christ or to make them holy. In chapters 9 through 11, Paul told them that ethnic Israel was not unimportant and that God had not rejected Israel, but, but that a wrong focus on their ethnicity and a wrong focus on the Mosaic Law would actually distort and deny the powerful work that Christ had done in them to bring them into a family with both Jews and, Jews and Gentiles. And so he's, he's, he's uh, hitting them at, at parts that would have been vulnerable. And, and then in chapters 12 and 13, he's exposed their disunity. And he's called them to unity with people who are ethnic, ethnically different than they. And the implication is that they haven't been unified in, in the way that they treat one another. They, they have been uh, setting up these, these boundaries within their own church. And then in chapters 14 and 15, Paul has spoken frankly about the needs for the Jews and the Gentiles to heal their divisions because that's what God made them to do, to actually come together and unify with one another. And so with all these harsh statements, they, they may have thought that they have a minimized role within their own salvation and they, they should recognize that, that God was solely responsible for their salvation. But, but the Roman congregation might think that Paul had lost hope in them and, and that they were heading for spiritual destruction. And so Paul now turns a corner here in verse 14 to remind them and to encourage them about their own faith. He wants to remind them of why he has given his life to the gospel and why he has given it to share the gospel specifically with the Gentiles. And then he wants to encourage them specifically about their own spiritual condition. So would you follow along as I read, beginning in verse 14? This is the Word of God. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God, to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles, ministering as as a priest, the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become 
acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ is already, was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Paul was motivated to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul was motivated to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul finishes up here in chapter 15 by talking about his past ministry. And then, as we'll see next time, he's going to talk about his future ministry plans so that they know uh, that they will know that he does intend to come and visit them. And so that no matter what he does, that, that they will be on the same page with him. He doesn't want to think that he's opposed to them, but that he's on the same page with them, that he is on their side. And, and so he wants to tell them about what his past plans are. That's what we're going to look at today. And then what his future plans are with regard to them and his ministry. And so we see four parts of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. Number one, the fruit of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. The fruit of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. After making some harsh statements, as he's done in the first uh, 14 chapters, really, Paul wants to encourage them about his confidence in their salvation. Notice how he begins here in verse 14. He says, And concerning you, my brethren, brethren, I am convinced that you are full of goodness and filled with knowledge. And so you see these, these terms kind of piling up that he's saying, I'm confident in you. That you are, first of all, my brothers. Right? I'm not talking to you as unbelievers. And all these harsh statements I'm, I'm saying for your good to remind you. He's going to say, I want to remind you of what you already know, but, but don't think that I'm opposed to you or that you're, you're unbelievers or something like that. I, I, I count you as my brothers in Christ, and I am convinced that you're full of goodness and knowledge. Paul sees them as full of goodness, so moral character, and full of knowledge, so right doctrine or sound doctrine, moral character and sound doctrine. Now, obviously, they weren't perfect in moral character. When he says that you're full of goodness, I'm convinced that you're full of goodness. He's not saying you are perfect. And since he's been speaking pretty straightforwardly about what they're not perfect about, it's obvious that he doesn't think that they're perfect. He, he, wouldn't, um, he wouldn't need to remind them about their goodness if he hadn't been so harsh with them. However, he wants to commend them that in some sense they are doing well. And can't we say the same thing about each other? Can we see the good in, in other people while at the same time encouraging them towards greater godliness? I mean, can we encourage people in the things that they are doing right morally while at the same time encouraging them to take the next step towards greater holiness, greater purity and moral um, uprightness? And that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, listen, I'm saying all these harsh things to you and it, sounds to, it, sounds, it may sound to you like I don't think you're morally upright at all, but I think you are full of goodness. You are full of morality, and, and, but I want to encourage you even more. He also says that he's convinced in verse 14 that they are filled with all knowledge. Filled with all knowledge. Again, not that you're perfectly omniscient. And this would not be consistent with what he's written in other places and what we know of the Scriptures, that we are all finite. We cannot be perfect in knowledge. 
Um, he's not saying that they're perfectly conformed to the word, but, but we might call them orthodox in their doctrine. I know that you are upright morally. You still have some work to do, but you're upright morally and you're orthodox. It doesn't mean you know everything about everything, but, but it does mean that you have an orthodoxy, a, a foundation. You are sound in your doctrine. And this can only be ha- possible because the Spirit of God, because of the Spirit of God who resides in them. There's no moral character apart from the Spirit. There's no sound doctrine that is lived out in a community that, towards greater personal and corporate holiness. There's no sound doctrine apart from the Spirit either. And so he says, I am convinced that, that these things are true of you. And what this right doctrine does for you, notice at the end of verse 14, it, it allows you to pursue greater corporate holiness. He says, it, it, and you are also able to admonish one another. The word admonish just means to warn or to challenge. That means that, 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 that each person has a responsibility to warn one another when they're starting to stray, whether it be doctrinally or morally. And, and you have that ability. He's not, Paul's not writing to the pastor only. Okay? He's saying to you as a congregation, you are able also to admonish one another. There have often been times when people from our church have come up to me and said, hey, so-and-so is do, doing this. Do you know that? Do you know what I often tell them? Well, have you talked to them about that? Okay, if you've witnessed that that's happened, if you're concerned about it, you need to go to them. I'm not trying to defer my responsibility, but it's not my, my responsibility primarily to take care of all the sins in other people's lives. It's each of our responsibilities, isn't it? That we need to be watching out for the souls of other believers within this church. We don't just say, well, we'll pass that on to the paid professional. No, we each have responsibility. I know, Paul says, that you're able to do this on your own. You go warn and admonish someone. As we were just talking last hour, Matthew 18, you know, it, it, Jesus doesn't say, you know, when your brother sins against you, go to the pastor and tell him so that he can go to that person and talk to him. No, when your brother sins against you, you go to him. Okay, you tell him about his sin. And if he's not willing to repent, then you take two or three. And, and, and often what we've done is we've, we've got into this professional kind of mentality that the professional has to, to, to take care of it, otherwise it might not be handled right or something like that. First of all, I'm not a professional, okay? I just happen to do this for a living. But, but, but secondly, you have that responsibility because the Spirit has, has uh, given you that ability. He resides in you as a believer and gives you that ability not only to have moral purity yourself and sound doctrine, but be, to be able to admonish other people to equip and instruct other believers in the faith. And the more that we individually conform ourselves through the power of the Spirit to moral and doctrinal purity, the more we can help others do the same. Have you been in that position where you just you, you knew you had some, some of your own sin in your, in your life that you hadn't taken care of, and so you were unwilling to go and, and talk to that other person about their sin? And, and that's, that's a good thing to think through. I'm not saying just go, go do it no matter what because cause Jesus warns against that, doesn't he? He says don't go worrying about their speck in their eye when you have a beam in your own. So make sure you, you take care of yourself. But, but the problem, I think, we've gone to the other extreme and said, well, um, you know, I, I have sin. I'm not perfect, so I can't go to that person. But that's not what Jesus would be saying at all. Then we would never go to anyone about any sin ever. 
right? Because we, we never can reach that place of perfection in this lifetime. And so the, the warning here or the encouragement that Paul's giving is, listen, you're able to do that. And I'm encouraged by that. You don't have to wait for me to come along or one of your pastors to do this. You can do this yourself because you are morally upright. You are sound in your doctrine. You're able to warn one another. Paul now turns from the result in verse 14 to, uh, to verse 15 and 16 to show why he was written so harshly. Why has he written so harshly? The motivation of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. Paul's saying here in verse 15 that he has written boldly, but I have written boldly to you on some points so as to remind you. This is not uh, an easy message to convey. He's saying that, listen, you, apart from the gospel, are nothing. That's what the gospel says. That they, apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, you are headed for an eternal hell that you earned. And Paul's telling them that in this letter. And he's saying that now that you have salvation, it wasn't your earning. You didn't receive it as a wage. Because the wage of your sin is death. This has been a gift, isn't it? It's a gift of God through Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying here is, is really in many ways radical that you can't, you can't do it on your own. And so this is not an easy message to convey. Because by nature, we like to have our ears tickled. We like to think that, that we are the product of our own abilities, of our own efforts. And Paul's saying, saying boldly the opposite. He's saying, whether you are Jew or Gentile, every single human being is the product, that is, a, every single Christian is the product of God's grace. The only reason that he can be justifi- justified is because of Christ's finished work alone, not on the basis of anything that you have done. And by nature, we don't like to hear that. We like to hear, well, I had to do something, right? Had to be something. Maybe, I, what about when I listened? And what Paul's saying is, no, you were lost. You couldn't come to God. In fact, you didn't even want to, Romans 8, 6, and 7. You had no desire to do so, no desire to do so, and no ability. You cannot come to God apart from Jesus Christ. He has to do the work. He has to be the one who gives you life, right? Just like Lazarus. You know, Lazarus can't boast in his resurrection bodily because he didn't do anything. He said, wait, wait a second, he obeyed the command. And Jesus said, come forth. Well, yes, he did, but not before Christ gave him life, right? And that's the point in our salvation. We can't boast in our salvation. And Paul's saying this throughout the letter. And now he wants to say, listen, what, what I'm telling you is basically a reminder to you that when you first believed, this was clear to you. And now I'm just reminding you isn't that interesting that he says that? So as to remind you again, sometimes we think of the Christian life and the spiritual maturity of learning new things. And we should learn new things that, you know, that we, we don't know. But, but much of the Christian life is just about being reminded about what we already know, isn't it? And I'm so encouraged by this, this point here in Paul because I will never exhaust my responsibility as a pastor. Right? Because when I get finished preaching through the entire Bible, which I plan to do in the next five or six years, then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start it over again. And it's the same thing with our Sunday school. You know, we get through the six years going through this material that I think helps us uh, move along in the Christian faith. You know what I can say at the end of that? You know, I'm not going to teach you new things necessarily, but I'm going to remind you what you already know. 
And, and Paul's saying that to them because he's not bringing up brand new things. You know what it is to be a Christian. And, and yet we constantly need to be reminded of, of these things. Even though they were people of moral character and sound doctrine, as he said in verse 14, they still need to be reminded of the grace that comes from the gospel of Christ. And we constantly need this. One of the reasons we come together each week is to just be brought back to reality. Because sometimes we can get so, um, so high on our pedestal that the life is all about me and my, my salvation is all about me and this church is all about me. And we come back to church and realize, you know what, this is not all about me. It's about Christ. It's about honoring Him. Paul shows his authority at the end of verse 15. He says, Because of the grace that was given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles ministering as the priest of the gospel. So he's really piling up a lot of phrases here to tell us what he sees as his responsibility. He's saying, the reason I can speak to you with such authority on such harsh things is because I'm speaking as, a beho- as an apostle on behalf of God. And so part of the reason I'm speaking so frankly is that my responsibility is to be a minister on behalf of God, to, to be the mouthpiece of God in many cases. And specifically, he saw his responsibility there in the middle of, uh, or at the beginning of 16, he saw his responsibility to minister to the Gentiles. That I have a specific responsibility to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's why I'm writing to you, Rome, because you are primarily, your church is primarily made up of Gentiles. And I want to encourage you, and I see this as part of my ministry. Now, this doesn't mean when he says, I'm a minister to the Gentiles, we often think of Paul the apostle, the minister of the Gentiles. We might think, well, that means that he's just totally excluded the Jews. But, if, but we know from, from, his, um, from his example, from his life, that that's not the case. Do you remember the first thing that he would do every time he went to a new city? What was it? Where do you go? Into the synagogue, filled with Jews. Paul still loves his own people. And yet he sees that God has a special place for him in, in taking the gospel to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And so Paul wants to give this offering to God. Notice how he uses this language here at the end of verse 16, as a priest, the gospel of God, so that my offering the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying, in a way, okay, metaphorically, he's not an actual priest, but he's saying, in a way, I serve like a priest of God. And what I'm offering is your lives, Gentiles. As you come to faith in Jesus Christ, I take you and put you before my Father. And as a priest, he's, and I, I'm the priest, Paul's saying, and I'm offering you before God, and God gladly accepts them. He's not saying that he's an actual priest, right? We each have individual access to God. We don't have to go through a priest anymore. That's not what he's saying. Um, we don't have to go through a fallen human mediator in order to get to God like Old Testament Israel did. We're now able to go to God the Father through God the Son. So we go to God through God. So we go directly to God, effectively. Right? We are individual priests. This is what Baptists call the priesthood of all believers. Every single Christian is an individual priest. And, and the reason we know this, First Peter 1, Paul, uh, Peter talks about that. Right, that, that you are a priest, a royal priesthood, all of you. You are part of the priesthood now. And so Paul's saying, in a way, the, what, what I offer to God is my sacrifice. In addition to all of his offerings you know, of holiness and thanksgiving, he's saying, I'm offering you to them. 
Not that he kills them or anything like that. But he's saying, I'm offering you as what God wants from me. And so this is why I'm doing it. This is the motivation for what I'm doing. The fruit of Paul's ministry in verse 14 is that believers are growing in purity and doctrine. The motivation of Paul's ministry in verses 15 and 16 is to advance the gospel to the Gentiles so that he can present them as an offering to God. Thirdly, we see the boast of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles in verses 17 through 19. The boast of Paul's ministry. Just like in salvation, the advancement of the Gentiles in the Christian faith is 100% grace. It's not based on works of righteousness, which they had done. So Paul's ministry to them, is saying, he's saying, my ministry to you is also based on grace. That is, Paul can boast about his ministry to them, not because of what he had accomplished. Look at me. Not what he accomplished in his own strength, but what Christ accomplished through him. Do you see that in the text? Look at verse, we'll read verses 17 and 18. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. So what do you boast about, Paul? Verse 18, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. You know what I boast about? About the work that Christ does through me. That's what Paul's saying. I can't take any of the credit because Christ was working through me. Christ gets the credit. And the result is that Gentiles are converted. That's what the obedience is talking about there at the end of verse 18. The obedience of Gentiles in word and deed. And the second result in verse 19 is that Paul's message was authenticated by miracles in power of signs and wonders. Wonders. Paul's saying, listen... I." When I came to you, I didn't come with a brand new religion. Wait a second. We have, we have the Mosaic Law. We have the salvation that comes by grace and, and, and that's um, administered to us through the Mosaic Law. We've had this for 2,000 years. And now, Paul, you're coming along. Or 1,500 years, I should say. But, but now, Paul, you're coming along and you're bringing us a brand new religion. And, and that's the way it would have been perceived by the Jews. And that's why God gave him this this ability to do miracles. So it would help authenticate this message. Yes, this is a huge change in God's system that now no longer do we go to a tabernacle, but we are the tabernacle. Now no longer do we go to a priest, but we have Christ as our priest. Now no longer do we take sacrifices, but, but we have one final and finished, complete, paid in full sacrifice in Jesus Christ. The hope that the, the Jews had been waiting for was the Messiah to come. And this Messiah has come. And now Paul's saying, he's here. He, he's, he's here among us in the person of his spirit. He's, he's died and he has, been cruci- he has been crucified and he has risen from the dead. And, and how can you prove that, Paul? Because lots of people have come along and, and said that they were the Messiah. And Paul's saying, the proof of it, or the authentic, one of the authentications of it, is in my, in my miracles but also empowered by the Holy Spirit, right? If, if the Spirit doesn't work, then no one would believe. Paul's message was empowered by the Holy Spirit. You see that in the second part of verse 19. And then, finally, the establishment of churches resulted from Paul's ministry at the end of verse 19. So that, so what resulted from, from Paul's work and his explanation of the Gospel, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, this is amazing, I have fully preached the Gospel of Christ. I fully preached the gospel of Christ. Now, we might look at that and on face value, we might think, okay, that means he preached the gospel to every single human being from Jerusalem, right? From Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. 
Greece. And how could he have done that? I mean, how could every single human being from Jerusalem all the way over to Illyricum hear the gospel? And I don't think that's the point. He's not saying that I've preached to every single person. I think what Paul's saying is that, and we're going to see this here in in some of the following verses, that he set up beacons of light in key areas. That is, local churches. And and do you remember the areas he primarily would focus on? Not the, not the, the rural areas, but the urban areas. He would go to a city and plant a church. Does that mean we shouldn't have churches in rural areas? No. What he's saying is, that's, the, that's kind of the, the, um, the headquarters, so to speak. And then out from there, that church ought to consider, what are these other areas around us and that we need to minister to? And, and now you, this individual church is going to establish other churches in the rural areas to make sure that the gospel is fully preached. And Paul's saying, like, all the city centers I went to and established churches from Jerusalem to Illyricum. And you can, you can document that from from his uh, missionary journeys in the book of Acts. He's saying, I fully preach the gospel. That's what, that's what his mission was. He set up these beacons of light so that the gospel could be proclaimed. So that no matter where you were from Jerusalem or all the way to Illyricum, there was a headquarter, there was a headquarters for the gospel. And this is what pioneer church planning looks like. It means to establish a local church and then move on to another area and do the same. And that's why I am so encouraged by, by several of our missionaries who are doing this kind of work. Now, that doesn't mean that all missions work has to be this way, uh, but, but this really is at the center of what Christ called missionaries to do, what, what Christ called churches to do. That is to establish individual local churches and then reach out to their area. That, that that church would, like our church, would know who we need to reach. We need to reach the people within some, some distance within this church. We need to reach them. And then as we think about regions, what regions are missing churches that need to have a good gospel witness? And, and Paul's saying, listen, I've come along and established those churches, and, and that way the gospel is fully... There's nothing left for me to do here. In Jerusalem, all the way to Lyricum, there's nothing left to do. Because I've established all the headquarter churches, so to speak. And now it's time for me to move on. And he's going to show us next week that he wants to move on to Spain. is what he really wants to do because the gospel hasn't been preached. The reason for this is because Paul saw as the scope of his ministry to reach the unreached peoples. To reach the unreached areas. Paul made it his goal in verses 20 and 21 to reach people who hadn't heard the gospel. He wanted to go to places where the foundation had not been laid. So let's look at these verses. He says in verse 20, And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as, as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. So when he says at the end of verse 20 that I, I don't want to build on another man's foundation, he's not saying that building up on a foundation is unimportant. But instead, he's saying, I myself see myself as a pioneer church planning missionary, not as a long-term plotting pastor. Nothing wrong with that. If we use a building illustration, Paul's saying, I'm the one who, who's the, who pours the concrete for the foundation. 
And then I move on. I'm not going to stick around because I'm not the builder. I'm not the one who comes in and does the rough carpentry and then the finished carpentry. Okay, I'm the one who, who lays the foundation of the church. And so I want to go to a place where foundations aren't laid because I've already gone from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum and I've done that. And now other people are building on that and that's great. And they ought to continue to do that. I'm going to help them with that and encourage them and pray for them. But he saw as his responsibility to go to a place where there was no foundation laid. He saw that his ministry ought to be to unreached people as a way to... Notice how he, he uses this as um, a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He sees that what God had promised in the Old Testament is actually coming true through him. In verse 20, 21 here, he quotes from Isaiah 52.15. And Isaiah 52.15 comes right before Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is a familiar... Um, a familiar chapter in our Old Testament where it talks about uh, Christ being crucified, or that He was wounded for our transgressions and that He was bruised for our iniquities. Well, in Isaiah 52, 15, um, which Paul's quoting from here, it's actually a prophecy of Christ's second coming. And, and so, um, in, in the context, he's saying that Isaiah is saying in his context in chapters 50 and 51 that they were primarily concerned about whether God would hold up his end of the agreement. God, are you really going to send your Messiah? Are you really going to follow through on bringing your people salvation and bringing them into the land? But that was not the right question, Isaiah is saying. God would clearly follow through on his promise. He had never failed on his promise. The real question was, were they going to actually repent? That was the condition. And God following through on His promise. And so Isaiah in, in chapter 52 is making clear to Judah that God's redemption comes through Christ's suffering servant. We might expect God's deliverance of Israel to come through a power, powerful act of deliverance by God. But we wouldn't expect it to come through humility and suffering like it did. And yet that's what that passage prophesies. And so in Romans 15, Paul is quoting from that passage, Isaiah 52 to show that this message of salvation through the Jewish, Jewish Messiah was not only going to be seen and understood by Jews, and it will be in the end times, but it also will be seen and understood by the Gentiles. And so part of Paul's ministry was to make it happen. As I see more and more Jewish converts, the end times is coming nearer and nearer. That through the power of God, hundreds of and maybe thousands of Gentiles would be able to see and understand what had been prophesied in the Old Testament, that they would receive the Jewish Messiah. Look at verse 21 again. They who had no news of Him shall see, and that they who have not heard shall understand, that these Gentiles who didn't know the Messiah would know Him. And so as I spread the Gospel, when I go to places where the Gospel has not been preached, and I see people embrace the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and it brings closer and closer the end times when Christ will reign over all. Let me um, there we go. Let me conclude with uh, a few applications for us. Number one, the strength of Ambassador Baptist Church is defined by its commitment to holiness and truth. This is what we ought to be about as a church. We need to be committed to holiness and truth. This is what Paul was talking about in verse 14. He says, I'm so thankful 
that you are full of goodness and full of knowledge and that you're able to warn and admonish one another. Paul was confident that they, while imperfect, were mature enough to, to, to be morally upright, to be holy, and to be sound in their doctrine. And the outworking of that moral purity and sound doctrine was that they would be able to talk to one another and warn them about, um, warn them and, and exhort them on towards greater holiness, admonish one another. And I would suggest to you that the strength of our church is defined by how morally pure we are and how orthodox we are in our doctrine. When I say orthodox, I mean um, uh, committed to the same truths that are in the Scripture. How close we are in what we actually say we believe to what the Scriptures actually say. Are we a church that carefully considers the spiritual lives of others? When I say others, I mean each one of us. Or do we carefully consider the spiritual lives of one another? And that doesn't mean that we go around looking for moral perfection. But rather, are we willing to confront people who are living in unrepentant, keyword unrepentant, sin? Even if it brings some backlash. Are we willing as a church to remove an unrepentant member? Even if it means that, that we have a loss of stability financially or, or, or corporately. You know, it kind of just rocks us a little bit that we've lost somebody that's, that's been so committed to us for so long and we've been committed to them. Are we willing to remove that person even if it brings some instability? What about our doctrine? If a member of our church is spreading heresy either overtly or, or covertly, subtly, are we individual members willing to stand up for the truth even at the, at the risk of mistreatment, even if, at the risk of, uh, uh, of being rejected, maybe be by the minority or by, by the majority even? How committed are we to these two clear responsibilities that we have? To holiness, moral purity, and to doctrine. And this is something that we constantly evaluate. It's not like, you know, when our church started in 1939, we were good at that. So now it just doesn't, you know, we're good. It, 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 it's got to be that, that way to the end, right? And yet, as I've pointed out uh, a few times before, there, there is no church that is still in existence from the first century. Did you ever consider that? And so even churches that start out well and continue for many decades and maybe even centuries, they eventually die. And the only thing to protect them from dying or turning away from the faith is individual members and corporate members. That is, as a whole, we are concerned about those two things. That's going to determine the strength of our church. And as we do poorly in, in um, promoting our own... I say promote, it sounds like I'm going to go around telling people about it. But, but when I, I promote it by actually living it out a living out moral purity and sound doctrine, and then looking out for other people to make sure that, that they're on the same page that our church has said that we are. And that's consistent with the Scripture. So the, the strength of our church is defined by our commitment to those two things. And then secondly, the mission of ambassador must be driven by the larger mission of Jesus Christ. The mission of ambassador must be driven by the larger mission of Jesus Christ. 
even though we've been around for a long time, and, and maybe I should say especially since we've been around for a long time, we need to regularly evaluate ourselves. We need to regularly answer the questions, why are we here? What is the point of us showing up? What is the point of this individual ministry? What what are we doing? We need to be driven by a larger mission than, than what we want. Because the challenge in the church of our age is that that we can become more concerned about maintenance. I'm not talking about the building, okay? I'm talking about subtly transferring the, the fundamental reason for why we exist, which is to make disciples, and subtly transferring that to maintenance. How can I take care of myself? Or we can say it as a whole, we can do this together, wrongly. How can we take care of ourselves? How can we make ourselves feel good about being together? How can we make each other feel good? How can we set up programs that will suit our interests? Instead of making sure that everything that we do, every single ministry, every single part of our worship service is about advancing the greater work that Christ has called us to. The advancement of His mission, His great commission, which is to make disciples and to baptize them and to teach them how to observe everything that Christ has commanded. The goal here is not to build an empire. We can draw lots of people in by by appealing to their felt needs, right? Our goal is to open up the doors to as many people as possible so that they would come in and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and, and be reconciled unto God like God has mercifully done to us. Because everyone who comes to Christ will not be turned away. And so our job is to give them the message. And so as a church, we should have a desire to make our mission consistent with what Christ's mission is for us. And that's what Paul does here. He says, I know that God wants to descend the gospel to the Gentiles. You know how that's going to happen? One of the ways it's going to happen is through me. I'm going to go out there where the gospel hasn't been preached and I'm going to lay a foundation so that Isaiah 52 is, is, is being fulfilled through me. And we ought to do the same thing with regard to our mission for the church. That is, that Christ wants this great mission to happen with us, which is to make disciples of all nations. We're part of that all nations. So how can I be fulfilling what Christ has, has commanded us to do and prophesied that will happen How can I be a part of that? How can I make sure, how can we as a church make sure that that we're doing that? And so as a church, we should have a desire, I think, to grow in our membership and in our yearly giving so so that we can be a larger part of what God is doing. That is, planting churches in surrounding areas where the gospel hasn't been preached or where the gospel has grown cold. This is something that I pray for regularly and I, I pray that, I hope that you will as well. Our mission must be driven by the larger mission of Jesus Christ. Paul here wants to encourage the believers. He doesn't want them to go away feeling terrible about themselves because of all the harsh things that he said, but he wants to remind them, hey, listen, I know that you're a brother in Christ. And I'm confident in your moral goodness and your knowledge and that you're able to warn one another. 
And, and, and so I just want you to be clear about what I'm doing, and, and I want you to come on board with what I'm going to do, and that's what he's going to talk about next time. I'm heading on to Spain. I need your help. And, and so do you see where I'm going, why I've done these things? And, and, and next week he'll say, do you see where, where I'm headed? And based on that, I want you to come on board with, with, this, with helping and, 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 um, and being a part of this mission that he was going to do. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help in, in giving us direction as we think of, of our responsibility to maintain moral purity and sound doctrine. I'm thankful for uh, this church. I'm thankful for this body of believers who are concerned about both of those things. Lord, I've seen specific ways in which those things have been promoted in this church when believers are concerned about their own spiritual lives, their own spiritual understanding and also about other people within this church. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to do this well, to do this in a way that's loving like Ephesians 4 calls us to, to speak to one another truth in love so that we will all be able to grow up grow up into Him who is our head, even Jesus Christ. Lord, we exist for you. We don't exist for ourselves or for our own self-maintenance. To please ourselves, certainly we take pleasure from being part of this church and being a part of the ministries of this church, but that's not our primary reason. The primary reason that we are here is to accomplish the mission that Jesus gave us to do. So help us to think carefully about that and and to be encouraged by one another and with one another about our own uh, salvation and about the not because of anything that we have done, but because of the mercy that comes from Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.